This week, we were all grieved and distressed by the racial violence that we witnessed in the recorded killings of Philando, Philando Castile and Alton Sterling, and then seeing the five police officers killed in Dallas during an otherwise peaceful Black Lives Matter uh, demonstration. And uh, for those of us who are white, it is, um, it's impossible for us to fully appreciate um, the agony that our black friends and neighbors are continuing to experience. And as I prayed for my three sons this week, um, I, I realized in a new way that the world that my two white sons are growing up in is actually a different world than the world my Hispanic son is growing up in. And that those worlds um, may be totally different than the world that their black peers are growing up in. And we as a community have been reminded again of the crushing and brutal effects of racism and violence. And while we may have more questions than answers at this point, what we can be sure of this morning is that God's heart breaks over these realities. And he is hastening even now to bring in a kingdom that is completely different than what we see, one where people of all tongues, tribes, and nations will worship in unity together. God detests racism. He detests the shedding of innocent blood. He detests hatred between his children. And so we join this morning with thousands of years of Christians who, in the face of brutality and violence, have turned their eyes to the Lord and longed for a fuller manifestation of the gospel that brings peace. And until that day where the kingdom comes fully, we as the church need to weep with those who weep. We need to confess the sin of racism in our own hearts, and we need to raise our voices to demand institutional justice for those who are oppressed in our community and around the world. And as the people of God, we are called to it to be different in our relationships and our values, and there's no room for racism in the kingdom of God. We want to see our community reflect every kind of diversity that will be found in heaven, so it's incumbent upon us now that whenever we see racial barriers um, and tensions, that we'd be the first to listen and try to understand and to even reach out a welcoming hand of friendship and peace. So as we so often do together this morning, let's say the Lord's Prayer together. And today let's let it be a prayer of grief and a prayer of repentance and a prayer of deep longing that Jesus would come quickly and heal our hearts and heal our land. And so together with, with full voice as we do in whatever version you're familiar with, let's pray the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Well, this is our third and final week uh, in the series on perseverance. And uh, many of you have been kind to come up to me and say, hey, so glad you're here. When is Jeff coming back? Um, I don't know, but this is the last week I'll be here. Uh, the first week we talked about persevering in marriage, and we said that marriage exists to demonstrate the profound love of God for his people, that it serves as a living metaphor, that it is a dramatization of the gospel, and that by persevering in it, we, demonstration, we, we demonstrate with our lives the truth 
that God is wholly devoted and utterly faithful to his people. And then the next week we looked at persevering in work. And we said that all work has the designed potential to reflect the glory of God and to contribute to the good of the human community, of all people. And that by persevering in our work, we actually give form and we give shape to the grace of God in the world. And this week we're going to talk about the importance of persevering in power. Now, you may remember from last week, I actually said that one of our default sinful purposes in work is the accumulation of power and prestige and possessions. Um, I'm going to equivocate a little bit. I'm going to say that really what we were talking about there was, was worldly power. And what we're going to talk about today is persevering in the power of God, which is, which is a different thing. And I had a different title for this sermon. And this week I was reminded about the importance of the word power. And actually with the help of my kids, as it often is, I was thinking about um, a time a few weeks ago, I was sitting with my son Jackson uh, on the couch, he's four, and I put my arm around him. You know those transcendent moments you have with your kids where something like really profound happens? There's a connection that just, that overwhelms you. And I was sitting there with him and I put my arm around him and I said, Jackson, I love you so much. I am so glad to be your daddy. I am so glad that you're my son. I'm so thankful that God has put us in a family together. And he reached up and he grabbed my cheeks with his hands like this. And he just pulled my face close to where our noses were almost touching. And with all sincerity, he said, Daddy, I am so glad that I have lasers and I can laser bad guys. <laughs> and I, I was just like, I, I really thought we were having a moment. I, I could have sworn we were on the same page. Um, and yet it's a good point, right? Uh, kids love superpowers and superheroes. And there is something to say for power. And so we will persevere in it. And we're going to read this morning out of 1 Corinthians 1. So if you have your Bible and want to open there, 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 18, the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Corinth. And he says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what we preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preached Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and, and sisters, think of what you were when you were first called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. What we see in this passage is that the power of God is found in the foolishness of the gospel. I don't know if it's true in your house, but in the Rose home, we love the sound of music. Any sound of music fans? Okay, all right. The first two services, we didn't have time, but since this is the laid back fun 11 o'clock crowd, maybe we'll just do a service sing-along today, right? <laughs> Do-re mi, join in when you're ready. <clears throat> we won't do that. One of the core conflicts in that movie is this grumpy man, the Captain Von Trapp. And remember this guy here with his whistle? We find out that he has lost his wife. He is a 
widow, and he, with her, he has lost the ability to experience joy. And we get the sense that he was probably once a fun guy, but now he has become this empty authoritarian who rules his children with regimen and fear. But then, this pretty young governess comes along, and as you know, nobody solves a problem like Maria. And so she woos him with her whimsy, and he regains his fun and his zeal, and he becomes his truer, better self again. And as he embraces the foolishness of his children's games and their lives, his seriousness and self-regard melts away, and he relearns how to love and laugh. And I think when it comes to our lives as Christians, um, many of us have become like the widower, Captain Von Trapp. We have lost our zeal, and we have become, above, above all else, highly respectable, serious, prudent, successful, organized, intellectual. And yet we read here in the scripture that the power of God exists in the foolishness of the gospel. And so if we are to persevere in the power of God, we have to learn to persevere in the foolishness of the gospel. Now just to be clear, foolishness as Paul uses it here is not meant to juxtapose faith and reason as though placing our faith in Jesus means the forfeiture of logic. Not at all. Nor does Paul use the word foolishness here to convey a sense of being absurd or ridiculous. Rather, what Paul means here by foolishness is something closer to contrary to the world's economy. When I say the word economy, some of you may think of its very narrow meaning, financial markets and the price of soybeans and GDP and things like that. There's a broader meaning of the word economy. Really, in its Greek roots, it means to manage a household. Really, what it's getting at is that as a society, all of the resources that we produce and consume and manage is our economy. It's really everything we touch in our lives. So to persevere, then, in the power of God, we have to learn to persevere in the foolishness of the gospel, contrary to the world's economy. The world's economy is not always bad, it's not always wrong, but it is always insufficient. It is incomplete, it is myopic. The passage says that Greeks ask for wisdom and that Jews demand signs. Those things aren't bad. Actually, the Bible extols those things. Both of those things are from God. They're just insufficient. Human wisdom and human strength, they're not bad, they're actually good, they're from God but they're insufficient. The wisdom of God and the power of God are better. So the reasoning of the gospel goes beyond the world's economy. The world's economy is sometimes totally wrong, but it is always insufficient. It is always too small. If you read the story The Big Short or saw the movie, this story about Michael Burry, and he's this prodigy working in finance. And back in 2005, he sees that the American residential real estate market is going to crash because it's built up in all these subprime mortgages, all these people who have loans they can't afford and weren't credit worthy for. And so he comes up with an investment thesis that basically presumes the collapse of the American economy. And as he goes and pitches this thesis to banks and tries to sell people on the idea, they go, <laughs> are you kidding me? Are you, do you not watch the stock market? Do you not see how great things are going? Right? They think it's foolish because it's contrary to their understanding of the current economy. Well, we know that he was right, and in 2008, while his portfolio was over 500% higher, it had appreciated, many Americans lost a third of everything they owned in the market in a month's time. But oftentimes, things that are contrary to the world's economy seem foolish. And we see in our passage that the foolishness of the gospel is contrary to the world's economy. 
When I was roughly 16 years old, I became a Christian and I first beheld the glory of God and the grace of God and the gospel. And I first understood the primacy and importance of the way that God loves people. And at that point, I had such zeal, such passion. I was willing to do anything, to do whatever it took, to go anywhere, to lay my very life down if it was necessary, to make sure that people who were far from God could understand the gospel, to know that Jesus had come to bring them close to God. And 18 years have passed, and now I'm 34, and I have children, and I have a mortgage, and I have adult responsibilities, and I start to worry about things. I worry about college costs, and I worry about, worry about whether I'll have enough savings to retire, and I worry about what happens if I get a prolonged illness. I worry about the culture that my kids are growing up in. And listen, none of these are unreasonable concerns. In fact, that's the point. They are very reasonable concerns. Captain Von Trapp would agree. They are prudent. They are wise. I think that this is part of what Jesus was addressing when he speaks in Revelation 2. In Revelation 2, Jesus speaks to seven churches in a pattern of commendation and condemnation. He applauds them and corrects them. And so in Revelation 2, 4, Jesus speaks to the church at Ephesus. And he says, you you Ephesians, you who have embraced the gospel, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Ephesians, there was, something, there was something that happened when you first embraced the gospel, when you first understood my love for you. You were full of zeal and passion and willingness, and you've drifted from that. You've, you've forsaken the love you had at first. And I want to correct you in that. And then in Revelation 2, 19, he speaks to a different church at Thyatira. And rather than correcting them on this point, he commends them. And he says, you at Thyatira, I know your deeds, your love and your faith, your service and your perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. For these believers, there was, there was that same instinct when they first came to know the grace of God, a willingness, a zeal, a passion. And Jesus says, you have actually matured into that rather than maturing away from that. Much like we see in Captain Von Trapp, there tends to be a freedom of movement attending the time in our life when we first embrace the truth of God's grace that can fade over time and actually become more of a rigid, careful, worldly posture. And that's particularly true, I think, for those of us who become Christians at a young age. And yet we see in this passage that the way of foolishness is the way of Christ. Look in verse 21 of our passage. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. Very prudent evidence. But we preach Christ crucified. Christ was the king of fools. He made decisions that were fully aligned with his father's kingdom and utterly out of alignment with the world's economy. If you've ever driven a car where the alignment is out, you know that you intend and expect the car to go to a certain direction, and yet it pulls and drifts another direction. That's just what Jesus' life was like. The Bible says that he's the creator of all things, that the earth was as his footstool, and yet when he takes on flesh and dwells amongst us, he says the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He comes and says the first will be last, and the last will be first. Rather than calling people to follow him or who were important and of nobility, he calls fishermen and women who at the time were socially disempowered and disenfranchised. Rather than asserting a defense or calling down fire from heaven on his accusers, he willingly marched to the cross. 
The prophet Isaiah says that regarding his looks, there was no form or majesty that we should regard him. None of this is as you or I would design it if we were, if we were writing how God should intervene in the world. And Paul admits, even in this passage, that in his pre-enlightenment era, which had a much lower threshold for what people would consider foolishness, that people heard the gospel, Christ crucified, and they say, that's foolishness, that's rubbish. And yet the way of foolishness is the way of Christ. I'm reminded of sophomore year in college, my wife had a good friend named Laura Trependall, and she was um, in Oxford, Mississippi, coming home from a Bible study one night, driving northbound in a two-lane road, and driving southbound on that same road were nine freshman boys from Ole Miss who had been out drinking. And the driver swerved across the yellow line, hit her head on, and she was killed instantly. And the, the boy was uh, tried and convicted to 10 years. And his parents went to the, or her parents rather, went to the sentencing hearing and stood before the judge and pleaded for mercy. And they said, we who know the love of God have been forgiven much and we forgive this boy for what he's done and judge we would, we would be grieved to see parents lose a young child the way that we have and so would you have mercy on him? And in consideration of that request, the judge commuted 90% of his sentence so that he got out of jail when he was 20 rather than 30, which is a pretty big difference. Asking for mercy for your child's killer is foolishness totally contrary to the world's economy, and yet it's exactly what Jesus did when he prayed for his executioners. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, that's not to say that justice would have been wrong. If they had stood there and, and pleaded with the judge for justice, that would have been absolutely aligned with the way of God. No question. They didn't go and petition that all the drunk driving laws be abolished from the state code. No, they, they, they believe in justice, but personally extending mercy to the one who had taken their daughter's life. The way of foolishness is the way of Christ, but it's also the way of cost. The way of foolishness is the way of cost. If you flip forward to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, towards the end of the letter that we were just reading, we were in 1 Corinthians 1, now in 1 Corinthians 15, and the apostle Paul is talking to these Christians and he's saying, you have embraced the gospel, you've placed your faith in Jesus, and yet there are some among you who say, there can't be a resurrection from the dead. People don't come out of the grave. That's, that's foolishness. You can't, you can't overcome the laws of physics. And Paul says, but if, if the dead aren't raised, then Christ wasn't raised. And if Christ wasn't raised, then our gospel is empty and you're still in your sins. And then in chapter 15, verse 19, he says, if for only in this life we have hope in Christ. In other words, if Jesus wasn't raised, if what we've said is not true, if, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. If this story about Jesus is simply a morality tale, if it's simply a religious fable, if there's nothing after death, or if Jesus isn't the way to life after death, as he said, then Paul says, we who believe in and follow Jesus are of all people most to be pitied. But is that true of you? Is that true in your life? Does that logic make sense in your life? Or are you like me and you look at pieces of your life and you say, actually, my life is really prudent. It actually makes a lot of sense to the world. In fact, most of the world would look at many of our lives and they would say, those lives don't appear pitiable, they appear enviable, regardless of whether Jesus was raised. It makes a lot of sense to the world. Here's the operative question. 
If you found out that, if, if you're a Christian this morning and you found out that Jesus wasn't raised, that the gospel wasn't true, would you regret your decision for having become a Christian? Would you regret your decision to have followed Jesus? If your answer is no, and you say, well, no, I've, look at this great community I have. I have a great moral code. I've got a great place to be on Sundays and be encouraged and sing. Then I think Paul would suggest that perhaps you've not experienced the foolishness of Christ. We know that Paul would absolutely regret his decision to become a Christian if Christ wasn't raised because he told us so. And that's true because following Christ cost Paul everything. It cost him everything. He went from being esteemed in his Jewish community to being a pariah in his community. He was arrested, jailed, flogged, shipwrecked, left in the elements, starved, and he was eventually killed for being a Christian. Now, if our response to the question isn't like Paul's, then it may be, it may be that our experience of Christianity is so safe, so insulated from risk, so unmarked by cost, that it actually resembles a civic religion more than it resembles the worshiping of a crucified and resurrected God. There's a man named William Borden, born in the late 19th century, born in the Northeast to great privilege and wealth. He went to Yale for his undergraduate education. He went back to Princeton to get his graduate degree. And in a time when even many middle-class Americans could start buying these mass-produced automobiles that were coming about, William Borden refused to buy himself one so that he'd have more money to give to foreign missions because he cared about the gospel of Jesus going to all the nations. And then he actually went to Egypt himself as a missionary. And after zealously serving there for four months, he contracted spinal meningitis and died at 25 years old. And if you go to Cairo today, you can go to this dusty corner of an obscure graveyard and you can see where William Borden is buried. And if you look on his grave marker, you will see this statement. Apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. That's true of William Borden's life, just like it was true of Paul's life. Apart from faith in Christ, this life makes no sense. He had the whole world at his disposal. He was in the upper 1%. He could have enjoyed all that the world had to offer. Lived a very nice, long life in the Northeast, and yet he went and died in a foreign land for people he didn't know because he believed in the gospel of Jesus. And yet so many of our lives just make sense, don't they? We might not have that written on our grave marker. Most of us are living lives, like I said, that are enviable to the world, not pitiable. Do, we, do you live in the nicest neighborhood you can afford? That makes sense. Have you pursued a particular career in order to make as much money as possible? It makes sense. Do you fill your time with recreation, recreations and hobbies that you most enjoy? Have you done all you can to pursue pleasure and avoid pain? All of those things make sense. Very reasonable. And, and I won't even say that they're necessarily wrong or bad but they are consistent with the world's economy and they are insufficient. And yet we see people who live contrary to the world's economy. Like I have a friend in Connecticut. He's 55 years old. He has no retirement savings to speak of because he spent his life in public service. And when most people his age who are within a decade of what we call retirement age in America, they would be working hard to amass resources to prepare for what's coming. And yet he and his wife are in the process of adopting their fourth child. They have three biological children, and then they went on to adopt three more, and now at 55, they're in the process of adopting a girl from Vietnam who's six years old who has special needs because they believe that God cares about children with Down syndrome, even if their culture has abandoned them. 
And the world looks at that and they say, that is impractical. That is imprudent. That is foolish. I don't know what Jesus says about it, but I suspect he says something like, well done, my good and faithful servant. But no one in the world looks at him and goes, man, if this gospel thing isn't true, I want his life. That's an enviable life. No. They look at it and they go, oh, I hope for that guy's sake that he's right about Jesus and about what God cares about. Because if not, that guy is a fool to be pitied. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied, says Paul. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. So this morning, the question, are you living contrary to the world's economy or consistent with it? Does your life make sense apart from faith in Christ? If Christ was not raised, does your life appear pitiable and foolish? Or does it just appear prudent and as expected? To persevere in the power of God, we have to see that the way of foolishness is the way of Christ. It is the way of cost. And ultimately, it is the way of consequence. Now, we all want to live lives of consequence. This is a, this is a universal human desire, and we know this from an early age. Verse 27 in our passage affirms it. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Do you see how the foolishness, the way of foolishness is the way of consequence. Each of those statements is consequential. God is using things consequentially. And if you're like me, you remember even as a young kid, knowing that you wanted a life of consequence, right? We, we have these big dreams, right? Kids want to be astronauts or the president or a knight or a warrior or a princess. And I remember when I was in kindergarten, where I went to school, we had nap time. And so they had cots. And at nap time, I was prone to get off my cot and, and go like tickle other kids and cause a ruckus. And so what they would do with me then, I don't think it's allowed anymore, but they would take me in my cot and put me in a closet. And so I remember laying there in solitaire by myself and staring up at the ceiling. And I had this recurring daydream and it went like this. See, in kindergarten, I met Christy. And Christy was the most beautiful girl I had met in all my five years of life. And I was excited. And so we had this, I had this daydream where we'd be walking along and Christy and I were enjoying conversation. And then two men would come and snatch her away to a helicopter. So predictable of villains absconding with people to helicopters, twisting their mustache as they go. And they would take off and they would fly around above the, like several hundred feet above the sky. And I remember I would watch, I would watch and then eventually they would push her out and she would fall. But she never died in that daydream. And you know why? Because I ran underneath and I caught her and she realized how brave and strong I was and she fell in love with me and we lived happily ever after, right? And fortunately, when I met the real love of my life, she just walked through the door. I didn't have to catch her or anything. So much simpler than I imagined. We all want to live lives of consequence and we dream of it from the time we are young. Yet our heroes, the people, the people who lived entirely consistent with the world's economy those are the ones we look up to. Those are the heroes of our faith. Those are the ones listed in Hebrews as heroes, right? Not the people who lived consistent with the world's economy, but contrary to it. It's the William Bordens and the Mother Teresas and the Apostle Pauls. These are the people who are our heroes. And yet the way that we're inclined to strive for consequence, in fact, the way that the world counsels us to strive for consequence is extraordinarily wrong if Jesus was right. The culture says achieve, Christ says receive. Culture says to amass, Christ says to share. Culture says to conquer, Christ says concede. Culture says live your best life now. And Christ says lay your life down now. 
The only shot at true consequence we have is to unabashedly pursue the foolishness of the cross. And we here in the Woodlands, Texas, are some of the most at-risk people in the whole world of living and dying and never getting close to foolishness. Never getting close to the kind of consequence that this passage talks about. Because here, we can live as self-made, self-sustained, self-exalted, self-serving, and nobody's going to look at us like we're strange. That's very consistent with the world's economy. But the way of foolishness is the way of the kingdom. God-begotten, spirit-sustained, Christ-exalted, others-serving. If our life doesn't cause other people to look on in puzzlement and with some amount of pity and ridicule, listen, ridicule, not, not because we've attacked their lifestyle with our religious criticism, but because we've laid our lives down out of religious conviction, if we're not seeing that, then we will never realize the consequential lives we've been made for and most deeply desire. You've heard Pastor Jeff talk about Jim Elliott, a hero in his life. Jim Elliott was a brilliant young man. He went to Wheaton College. He graduated, got married, and then went straight to the jungles of Ecuador because he wanted to take the gospel of Jesus to an indigenous people in Ecuador called the Alcas who had never heard of Jesus. They didn't know what it meant to be close to God. And so Jim and his fellow ministers stood in a river just outside where the Alcas lived, and they were murdered by those people and died and floated down the river. And the world looks at that and they say, foolish, foolish that you would lose your life and leave young widows and, and orphans, all of you, the whole group, for, for people you've never met in the jungle of Ecuador for this religious story. Nobody looks at Jim Elliot and says, man, that's an enviable life. If Christ wasn't raised, that's what I want. Nobody says that. And yet listen to what Jim Elliot said in his journal before he left. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The thing that we are all trying to hold on to, our life, our comfort, our convenience, our entertainment, our health, our safety, it's all slipping through our fingers like sand through an hourglass and we don't realize it. The Bible says that our life is but a breath and it's over. We're gone. This life is but just a pinpoint on the timeline of eternity. The world is watching much of the church today, and they may be saying fools under their breath, but we have to ask the honest question, how much of that is in response to our religious grandstanding and flagrant hypocrisy, and how much of that is due to our costly, Christ-exalting, self-effacing, other-oriented, risk-taking, wealth-divesting response to God's goodness of our willingness to lay down our lives for people? See, getting ridiculed because we've critiqued someone else's lifestyle choice is not what Paul's talking about by foolishness here. What he's saying is that in, in 1 Corinthians 15, 19 is, listen, our lives will be so costly, so in the way of Christ, so consequential, that if Christ wasn't raised and we're wrong about the gospel, we're to be pitied above all men. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just trail off. He doesn't just raise the question, oh, but what if Christ isn't raised? He goes on to verse 20 and he says, but... But indeed, Christ has been raised. And because Christ risked everything to give us his life, we are free to fearlessly risk everything to give him ours. Free and fearless. Now, not all of us are called to Ecuador like Jim Elliot or Calcutta like Mother Teresa. And in fact, unless you're here this morning and directed disobedience to God, God has called you to North Houston in this season. And yet he's called you to the, ex the same exact calling as Jim Elliot and William Borden and the Apostle Paul and Mother 
Teresa called us to live our lives in the power of God by embracing the foolishness of the gospel in such a way that if Christ was not raised, people would look on and say, what a pity. Yet he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So let's allow the foolishness of the gospel to govern our lives so that we can see and experience the persevering power of God at work. And the question this morning, what is God calling you to do in your life here? What is he calling you to pick up? What is he calling you to put down? What areas of life is he calling you to take risk and absorb cost for the sake of the gospel, for the good of our neighbors, so that at the end of life, it could be written on our tombstone like William Borden's that aside from faith in Christ, this life makes no sense. What is God calling you to today? Let's pray as we close this morning. God, we're grateful to you for your goodness and your power. Father, we're grateful that we in our weakness have, have the opportunity to experience the very power of heaven by embracing the foolishness of the gospel. Holy Spirit, we pray for help today that you would convict us of our sin, that you would make us humble and contrite and repentant and help inspire us to walk in the way of Christ, to accept the cost associated with living a life of foolishness, that the world would look at us and go, that doesn't make sense, and yet that the world would be blessed by us because of the way we're laying down our lives. Father, would you do that? We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.